welcome listeners to this episode of Shoot from the Hip. I'm Jeff Pedro in with Mark Avery, and we're from Sim Trainer, the Dayton area's leader in firearms training. If you're interested in buying a gun, getting some training, um, asking questions about guns or training or whatever it might be, make sure you give us a call at 937-293-3914. Visit us on the web at sim-trainer.com or stop down to the store and talk with one of our staff. And our store is located at 2031 Dryden Road, right across the street from DPNL. We'd be more than glad to talk with you about anything related to guns. As I mentioned uh, in past weeks, uh, the next several weeks are going to be devoted to specific topics. And this week's uh, show topic is uh, dedicated to competitive shooting. Competitive shooting is something that many people are thinking about getting into, and many have reservations because they got to perform in front of their peers, or they're not sure exactly what that means, or they don't like competition. They like sh- uh, staying in the stall, but you know they're just thinking about something different. They want to take the next step. Well, we're going to talk about that today, and uh, we have a special guest in the studio today. With us today is world-renowned competitive shooter Bob Vogel. Bob, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. And what we want to talk about today, Bob, what I'd like you to do today is talk about, first of all, how you got started in competitive shooting and um, maybe what are some of the first steps people that are thinking about doing it should do to get involved. Sure, sure. Uh, how I got started, I mean, I, I grew up on, on a farm in Ohio, out in the middle of nowhere where there wasn't too much else to do. And so I was shooting since I was a you know very young kid. Um, I decided about, when I was 15, I think, is when I decided I wanted to be a police officer. And that really sparked my interest in, in handguns. And I just had a really uh, fascination with them. And I wanted to be good with a gun. And so I started kind of seeking that out and graduated high school, went into the police academy. And that's right when I was in the police academy, when I was 19 years old, when I shot my first match. Uh, just doing some research, and I, I found a club about an hour away, and it, it was it was definitely an intimidating uh, thought for me because I, I I was doing it all by myself. So I, I showed up, you know, at the match when I was 19, and that's how it all started. Um, but the thing I would always tell people is just you got to get out there and do it. You know, at the end of the day, uh, you got to do something out of your comfort zone, and when you do that, your comfort zone expands, and you get more comfortable with it because it's people are very friendly. A lot of people think it's going to be. Um, you know, not friendly, but it is very, very friendly. People are, are helpful and, and they're going to recognize you right away as a beginning shooter and give you all these tips and advice and, and you're going to feel at home before you before you know it. I think that's the key point and I'm so glad you mentioned it because, you know, performing at the international, national, regional, state, and local levels, you're going to meet all kinds of people. But I think the common thread that runs through them, and I haven't had the occasion to compete at the national or international level, but I got to believe for the most part it's the same way. People are real friendly. They're willing to give you information. They're willing to help you out because it's all about making you better and growing the sport. Is that kind of yeah, what you're definitely, definitely. And you're right. It's all about growing, growing the sport and just getting getting more people into it. And there's a, a very, very small select group of people that are going to be professionals. They're going to be at a, at a higher level. The vast majority of people uh, are doing it. It's their version of playing golf on the weekends. Yeah. So um, they're doing it for fun, and obviously they want they want to get better. Um, but they, they, you know, it's it's a it's an enjoyment thing for them, and they're generally in a good mood, and they're going to be, you know, treating other people decent. So, Well, and, and you also find that there's people are very helpful. So when you, like you said, if there's somebody comes in that's a beginning shooter, they're going to do what they need to do to help that person be successful, as opposed to saying, well, you know, what do I have to do to beat this person yeah, to try to make yeah. them feel intimidated? Yeah, exactly. You're gonna always going to have probably some guys like that, but it's, 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 it's rare. It is very rare. The majority of people are, are very friendly and very nice. 
you know, I remember um, early on, you mentioned you were an aspiring police officer when you first got involved. Well, in my early part of my police career, I was on the SWAT team and we would go to state competitive shooting events. And there was an old fella who uh, watched me shoot a couple of days and he pulled me over to the side. Now, this was back in the, the mid 90s um, when semi-automatic pistols were very prevalent, but there were people shooting primarily Glocks. We, in, in, in our case, we were shooting SIGs. But uh, he pulled me to the side and he goes, young fellow, you're pretty good out there. And I got an idea how I can make you a little better. And at the time, I was not utilizing the aggressive grip where you have strong thumb over weak thumb, both thumbs and index finger pointing forward. And he told it to me. And at first I thought, who the heck is he? He's on the sideline. He's going to try to give me some advice. Yeah. But we, had, we were able to practice in between sessions. So I played with it the first night and found out wow, this is pretty interesting. It did, in fact, help me with managing recoil and getting successive accurate shots back on. And I kind of went and told him that I'm, I'm interested in that. Well, the first day passed, second day passed. Third day, I went back to the practice range. It was almost dark. Nobody was going. As you well know, when you go to those events, you're out in the hot sun all day long in the evening. You want to go yeah. enjoy yourself, get some good food, indulge in some adult beverages after all the guns are put away and, and have a nice evening. Well, I was really intrigued by what this man taught me. And the point I want to make by all this is there I was, a young, at the time, 27, 28-year-old kid, you know, uh, just I I had the world by the the behind. I thought I knew everything about everything. And here this guy told me just a little adjustment to my grip was going to make me better. And even though he was in the competition, he realized, as I'm realizing now, sitting in his body at 50-plus years old with deteriorating eyes, (laughs) not good reflexes, he was helping me become better because somebody probably took him under his wing when he was young and did the same thing. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, that's 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 a good example of the kind of people you're going to find a lot of times. Yeah, it's just it's just a wonderful group of people, and um, that's one thing I want to encourage the people out there that are interested in getting started. It might be intimidating initially just because it's the whole idea of competition, but people are going to help you along. Not only will they volunteer it, but if you go in there and just say, hey, could you kind of explain what's going on here, they'll be more than glad to do that for you. Um, when you get to the level that you're at, obviously, you started, you mentioned at 15 on the farm. What were some of the things you were doing at a young age to develop and enhance your skills as a pistol shooter? Well, I mean, I, I read a lot. First off, you got to have the, the information. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that. They just think if you go out and, and shoot this number of rounds and spend this amount of time on the range, you're going to get better. It, it, not so at all. Uh, you have to be doing the right things in the first place. So I read a lot of books and watched videos, and at that time the internet was pretty early. There was a little bit on there. But uh, I just immersed myself in knowledge, and obviously I, I practice a lot. Dry firing has been a huge thing. I haven't always been able to shoot, and, and in the beginning I couldn't afford to shoot as much as I wanted nearly. So I would do a lot of, lot of dry fire, um, all this stuff with the draw and the reload and speed-oriented speed things, it's about repetition. So I spent tons and tons of time uh, doing that, you know, among uh, among a lot of other things and, and also shooting a lot, too. Dry fire is really something I think is undervalued by a lot of people. I know that pe- yeah. shoot, people who shoot a lot, people who shoot in competition a lot understand how important that is. But for people who maybe haven't done that before or maybe have heard a rumor that dry firing a gun is bad for yeah, it, yeah. I mean, you know, those are the kinds of things that that's great information that you, you picked up and realized this is this is something that I can do. It costs me nothing but time. Exactly. I don't have to create a whole bunch of ammo. I just need a safe place and be safe, and then I can practice all those fundamentals and really get the muscle memory in place 
then when you put the live ammo behind it, yeah, you can yeah, apply it all. That's exactly it. And unfortunately, a lot of people, they don't understand dry fire. They I see them dry fire and they're just going through the motions essentially they're not doing things the same way as when you would shoot and, and, I, and I can talk I could talk about that for half an hour but that's that's an important thing is you, you have to be mentally connected when you're when you're doing that but when you you put some time and effort into it and you truly understand it and you you truly feel how it can help you that there's no doubt about it that it's um it's that important well you know we're going to talk in a little bit about the different types of training that we offer and you offer and one of the things I'm sure that runs kind of consistent the theme that runs consistent through your training, our training, anybody else's training is once you learn the fundamentals and you practice the fundamentals, you're going to get real good at what you're doing. The thing is, though, you've got to practice the right way. I've had people come to class. Matter of fact, several months ago, I remember this very, very candidly. An individual said he was having problems consistently shooting low into the left. Yeah. I told him, no big deal. Come to class. We'll do a quick diagnosis. We'll work on some of the things to correct that. We'll take care of the problem. He couldn't make the regular class, so we did a private lesson scheduled on Monday. This was on a Friday when I talked to him. On Saturday, unbeknownst to me, against my advice, he came in and shot 250 rounds. 250 rounds went low and left. So then he came Monday. He said, Jeff, I went and practiced on Saturday, and I didn't get much better. And I said, well, you actually made it worse. And he kind of looked at me, and and I was being a little bit facetious, but I said, you did it 250 times wrong. Now I got to go back and try to undo some of those things. So we worked it out, and literally in 10 minutes, we diagnosed with some snap caps, um, in, in interchange with some of his live ammo, we showed him exactly what he was doing—a combination of squeezing with one hand or both hands, depending on what what uh, situation he was in, and then slapping the trigger. What he was doing, and we worked on correcting it. But like you say, so many people they see something on video, but they don't pay attention to the detail, and then they go out and practice wrong, and it really doesn't benefit them a whole lot. So something you mentioned early on is that they got to pay attention to the detail, and they got to practice, but they got to practice the right way and know what they're doing, and that's where the reading and the beforehand knowledge uh, attainment's going to help them. Exactly, exactly. Now, what you just mentioned, I mean, I've seen that with, with many people. I, I continue to see it. Um, yeah, exactly. The, the low left trigger jerking, I mean, and that's, that's the hardest thing about shooting a pistol is trigger control. You know, there, there's no doubt about it. I tell people that all the time. You can get everything you might want to get by reading and watching video, but then sometimes you just have to have an instructor who knows what they're doing and can help walk you through some of those things. Yeah, exactly. And it's the best skill set a shooter can have, I tell people, is the ability to self-diagnose some of their own problems. Some people can do that better than others. Some people can, can learn indirectly from watching a video or reading, and they're out practicing, and they're really analyzing, am I doing what that guy was talking about? Some people are not as good at that. You know, the people that are not as good at that, they have a harder time. They, they need somebody standing over their shoulder pointing out to them exactly what they're doing wrong. And if they don't have that, they, they just don't realize it. So that's, that's a key point. That's a key point, Bob. And one of the things I do, I mentioned the snap cap drill where I load magazines. Um, I'll put five rounds in a magazine. I'll load uh, four live rounds and a dummy round intermittently among three magazines. And I'll have them just come up and on the tap of the shoulder or beep of the horn, come up and make one accurate shot back down to low ready, one accurate shot back down to low ready come up, the gun clicks, and then they see it. Well, I also record it on their cell phone because I've had many tell me, Jeff, when I'm doing the self-diagnostics, I know I'm not jerking the trigger. And I tell them, well, when you're doing live fire and you're trying to diagnose it yourself, it's hard to see because at the instant... The gun's exploding in front of your face. That's exactly right. And its recoil is pretty much mitigating or overriding the dip. And so when I slow it down and I show it on their video and they have the snap cap and the gun noticeably jerks and they go, I'll be darn, I am doing it. And what's really nice about that is when you bring to a level of conscious awareness 
what they're doing in a structured way. And I'm somebody like you, like Mark. We know exactly what they're doing. We can talk about it. Then we can tell them what they can do to correct it. We talk about breaking the trigger press down into three stages of touch it with the middle of the first pad, take the slack out, hold, and then smooth, easy press, and work on it that way, and then speed up that process. We can help them get better real quick. But there again, some people don't know how to diagnose the problem. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. You know, we, we talk about fundamentals, and um, I've had this conversation with you before we came over here with Mark and several other people, including one of my predecessors, Dave Spalding, and other people around the country. Really, shooting, in my estimation, is easier than golf, tennis, bowling, or any some of those other sports. But what's interesting about all those, including shooting, is they rely on a core set of fundamental fundamentals that if you learn them, practice them, repeatedly practice them, and then challenge yourself by putting yourself under increasingly challenging circumstances to practice them, you're going to get real bit, real good. But what, in your mind, are the essentials of shooting? What are those fundamentals that people need to well, really work on? What I tell people, and there's there's a lot of them depending on how you look at it, but the two things that stand out beyond a doubt um, are the, the grip and trigger control, I tell people. And, and trigger control is, is absolutely number one. Show me a guy that can do those two things, that can consistently um, off the draw, get it, get a nice, solid, high grip, control the gun with the right hand pressures and everything. And then, of course, most importantly, work the trigger without moving the rest of the gun. Show me a guy that can do those two things. And I don't care if he, if he knows nothing else. He's going to be better than 95% of people out there. Um, I mean, there's other things, but I think those two, in, in practical shooting that I do, the speed-based shooting that I do, I mean, we're shooting four, five, six shots a second sometimes. Um, I think those two things are the most important. And we had an incident happen at uh, another competitive event. It's called the Steel Challenge. You're probably aware, sure. of that, aware of that. Several, I think a couple months ago now, an individual had been shooting from the low ready because they let you either shoot from the holster or from the low ready, and then your the way your score is calculated is dependent upon what you choose. Well, this individual decided that after going several times, he wanted to go from the holster. And the match um, the coordinator told him, you need to practice in a dry fire mode with the gun that's been emptied, check three times to make sure it's empty, practice drawing from the holster. Presumably he did. Guy came to a successive match, and in the second stage, when he drew out of the holster, he had kind of a weak grip of the gun, and he presented to the target, and the gun flew right out of his hand out into the middle of the range. Now, it was obvious that that individual had not spent enough time mastering that draw. And some people say, well, how many times do I have to do it? 15, 25? (laughs) My response is hundreds, if not thousands. And it's got to be over a period of time. And even when you get it, you have to continue to practice, to develop, maintain, and maybe enhance just a little bit. So that's somebody kind of taking for granted, not understanding what learning it and then practice it really means. Yeah, no, that's exactly, I I see that too with a lot of people. Some people seem to think it's something, oh, I can go and go from nothing to taking an eight-hour class and being, oh, I'm, I'm good enough now to, to yeah. do this or do that, and it's, yeah. Mark, you yeah. Well, what, yeah, what about draw? I mean, the draw itself is something that has fundamentals that you need to do correctly, yeah. and if you haven't learned that, describe the draw, the proper draw, to get somebody to, you know, who's maybe thinks that all you got to do is take your gun out of your holster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's there's a lot onto it, and it, it's a lot easier to explain visually, too, and I can point to things, but I mean... So look uh, real close into the radio <laughs> when you're when you're going really fast. I mean, if you're if you're in a static position where you're just standing still and, and drawing to a target, uh, what I always tell people is the only thing you want to move is your hands and your arms. You know, so get set again. If you're gonna if you're gonna move and draw, it's totally that's a whole other topic. But for when you're standing still, drawing to a static target, and you're static, uh, only moving your hands and your arms, so getting everything set is what you need to do. Um, 
the grip, if and like I just mentioned, that's one of the two things is very, very important. If and when you ever practice the grip, you absolutely have to do it from the draw. I see that all the time. Anybody can stand there with a gun in their hand and get a good grip. But if you can't do that quickly off the draw, you're kind of wasting your time. So you got you got to do that. And you know, Bob, kind of different but related, concealed carry has been legal in the state of Ohio for almost 14 years. And I think the most neglected aspect of the concealed carry experience is holster selection and practicing drawing the gun out of the holster yeah. and being able to fire the gun. And yet it's probably the most um, likely situation where someone is going to have to spontaneously access their gun exactly. from cover, from a holster. And many people, and I know this just from talking to them, even some that claim that they know better, they go out, they buy their gun, they go to training, they practice on the range, yeah. they don't do any dry fire. Some people, they buy the holster, they don't even break in the holster, they put the gun in the holster, put it on their belt, and they don't ever yeah. practice having drawn that that's, gun from the holster yeah, or reholstering. I tell people that all the time among concealed carry people, I mean, I want to say non-shooters, but people that are pretty novice, that's the skill set that's the most lacking, is being able to deploy the gun. You know, put them on a line, because a lot of people don't think of that. They think, okay, I can stand on a line, I can hold the gun, I can line the sights up, press the trigger, oh, I can shoot a good group and all that. That's, that's you know, not nearly all of it. It's probably going to be more important that you're going to be able to quickly get to your gun, deploy your gun, and, and I see so many people fumbling around with that, don't know the safeties, don't know if the gun's loaded, this or that. How to reload, and to reload effectively. That too, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean. <laughs> you know, back to the holster issue, um, we've had several people who started out as I did with a simple um, uh, friction lock Phobos or Blackhawk holster. And then all of a sudden they see people not as skilled as you, but some who compete USPSA come with a little bit more thrilling holster. Next thing you know, they show up the next week with that holster. And I can remember one in particular. And I asked him, I said, how much practice have you done with that holster? He goes, well, that's what I was coming. I came tonight to practice. I'm yeah, like, yeah. whoa. Yeah, I mean, we got a problem. Yeah. Don't pro- practice <laughs> in competition. Time. Number one, it's yeah. a loaded gun. Number two, it's a, it, in many cases, it's a little bit different draw stroke. Yeah. And and it's certainly um, going to require you to get familiar with some of the neat stuff that you guys have in your competitive world, but it's not something you come to the competition the first time, never having to Exactly. The, the better shooters would probably, you know, tell you that too. Com- to, to me, a competition is a test. It's never a lot of, to a lot of guys, it's practice. They go there yeah. to get their time in. Like, I'm going to put my time in before. I'm going to do all this stuff a little more on my own and, and there. Because yeah, practice is, I think practice is defined as something you can do over and over and over again to try to get better. In a competition, in a match, you get one time to do it. That, that is a test. That is not practice. And if you don't put the practice in beforehand, you know, it's going to show. That's a good way to put you it. got to do the, your homework. Yeah, the competition yeah. is the test, and you got to do your homework before you get to take the test, and you're going to do your, – your, your performance is going to be directly contingent upon how much effort you put in leading up to the match, which brings me to my next point. Um, in the last month or so, you competed at the international um, – was it USPSA or – the, uh, the I, international I, was the IPSC World Shoot in, okay, in France in last France. month, about a month ago. Um, how much practice time, actual practice time, which I guess some of the lower-level competitions leading up to that were practice for you, but what would you estimate within a week be uh, practice time leading up to that event? Boy, and it would vary between the weeks. I mean, I, I, I like to say I never stopped practicing in, in 17, 18 years, whatever it's been of me competing, um, that I've never really stopped. But obviously I'm going to pick it up more in, in the month prior to that. Uh, I do tons of classes, so I'm I'm on a range a, a lot of times. Uh, boy, I I couldn't put like a honestly put like an hour or or a round count number on it, but it's 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 a lot. It's it's all my just to time. give them I mean, just to basically. give them an idea. Would you say you practice at least eight hours a week? Uh, overall, I would say more than that. Okay, but so how stage. much of that? What kind of balance between live fire and dry fire? Yeah, well, what I tell people is. You know, and I'd have to kind of explain dry fire to understand, but um, 
For every live round that I actually fire on a range anywhere, I probably mimic that live round eight to 10 times and dry fire. Wow. So I, I have thousands and thousands and thousands of more reps of, of working that trigger, seeing the sights, moving the gun across the targets in dry fire more so than live fire. And what sure. Mark said earlier and what he just reaffirmed, remember, it doesn't take you anything but time. There's no monetary expenditure other than the initial. If you want to use snap caps, if you're going to incorporate reloads into that dry fire training, um, but you've got all the basic gear, but it doesn't cost you any additional money. And uh, I mean, for you people out there who really want to get good and you're worried, like golf. I mean, by the time you pay for your round of golf and your uh, um, your your uh, cart and some of the other, buy your clubs and and in my case, a dozen balls every time you play eighteen holes, um, it can get to be costly. Yeah. Well, any recreational hobby is expensive, so the way that you can cut down the expense, but at the same time, probably increase the, the the training time is to spend time in the dry fire mode, doing the various things that you're going to have to do in live fire mode. And I'm I'm really um, I'm I'm not necessarily impressed but it was the number of eight to ten times that surprised me because i would tell people at least as much time in the live fire range as you do it's a lot dry fire it's a lot i told you if if i had two choices um let's say that the the first choice was uh live fire one time per week but dry fire as much as i want or i could i could live fire four times a week but no dry fire i only time i touch a gun is when i go to the range i I pick the first time every time you know dry live fire once a week and dry fire as much as i want because i'm It's, it's every day that I'm home, I'm doing it. Well, you know, somebody I think we all admire, Jerry Micklick, one of the, 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 the guys who kind of set competitive and speed shooting on, on, the, on the radar. Um, several on all weeks kinds ago, of different platforms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. several yeah. weeks ago he was trying to set a record for firing a certain number of, uh, I think it was 12 shots at four targets in less than a few seconds. And... He was out on the range with his daughter in this particular episode, which he reminded everybody, for every little bit you see, there's thousands of runs that we did behind the scenes to get it to this. He (laughs) said, even in this episode, and maybe they intended it this way, about halfway through he goes, I'm done. And his daughter said, what do you mean you're done? He goes, I got to go back to dry firing fundamentals. Right in the middle of the episode. and, and, And that was such a valuable point for here you got arguably one of the best shooters of all time. He's in the category with you and probably 10 or 20 others in the, in the country. But uh, he's saying, I got to go back to the fundamentals. You know, I got to put down the gun. He said, I got to put down the gun. Some people would say, well, I need to go hit more golf balls. I need to throw more balls down the lane. I need to hit more tennis balls. Well, he's saying, I need to put the gun down and I need to go work on fundamentals. And he was talking just about positioning the gun on his shoulder, coming up, getting sight picture, working through the sight pictures. And I know you do that. I watch many of your videos and I see you in your pre-event kind of run through how you're kind of visualizing. Yeah. When when you're in that situation, and and I've known Jerry quite quite a while too. And, you know, when you're in that situation where you're trying to break some kind of a record or, or go for that, especially if people are watching, you're the one that knows. You're the one that feels, and, and I can totally relate to that, maybe in the middle of this, like, I, I'm not going to be able to do this. You, you can just feel what, what's capable, what's possible in that situation based off what you got to do, what you're trying to do, and, um, you know, you know, you got to go back and, and work on well, it in that case. That is amazing because now that you mention it, that's exactly what he said. He goes, I know I can't do this right now. Yeah. He just laid it down and said, I know I can't do this. I got to go back and I got to work on some fundamentals. And, 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 again, you're in his class and you're saying the same thing. You're, you're at such a level that you know when you're good and you, you know when you're not so good. You know your you limitations. Gotta, there yeah. you go. Bob, let's shift gears just a little bit. And I want to talk a little bit about training. And over at Sim Trainer, 
uh, we offer a variety of training, but particularly relevant to competition training, we encourage people to take at least our handguns levels one, two, three, and four. Um, handgun level one in particular is a mastery of the fundamentals, grip, sight alignment, trigger control, reloading both with retention and under emergency circumstances. Uh, We teach them how to draw and reholster their gun because we think that's critical skills and we teach it in such a way that we tell them up front that our training is based on the fact that we're going to teach you the skills, we're going to practice the skills in class and then we're going to rely on you on your own in both dry fire mode and live fire mode continuing to practice those. Well, then we move to handgun two, where we talk about barricade shooting, shooting around barricades, and positional shooting, squatting, kneeling, laying. We even have a segment where we're actually laying down on our back, and we have them have to engage. But the barricade portion, we incorporate into the competitive shooting. And I know in, in your world, there's all sorts of different types of barricades, yeah. and people don't know how to navigate around a barricade. Well, we teach them easy ways to do that. And then handgun three is where it really gets interesting. We start... Um, move and shoot and shooting at moving targets. And in the move and shoot, we start just moving forward and backward. Then we start diagonal movement. Um, Then we have a moving target. Then we have popping targets. And at the end of three, they got a good flavor and a good skill set where they can start coming to competition. And when they come to competition, I think the best advice I give them is they're going to be amped up. We know that. So I tell them, go about half as fast as you think you should because you're always going twice as fast as you need to. Just because of the anxiety and the the, the stress and the, the adrenaline that, that happens. But uh, relative to training, tell us how you kind of take people who, I imagine there's people who specifically ask you, maybe it's just fundamentals, but what types of training do you offer? And then particularly what types of training do you put together relative to people who want to become competitive shooters? Sure. And a lot of it depends on, obviously, on the person. I mean, if you go to my website, I have basically three different classes, um, a competitive pistol, um, which is more just as – Eh, pretty strictly competition stuff. Um, and then I call it world-class pistol skills, which is really my most popular class. That's more of a mixture between competitive shooting and <clears throat> more tactical or self-defense minded. And then uh, practical pistol applications, which is generally more to like law enforcement military only. Um, the, the fundamental, what I tell people though, the, the fundamentals of shooting, I really feel are the same. You know, I, I tell people when it comes to that, I don't care if you do, IDPA, IPSC, USPSA, or if you're not into competition, if you're, you know, a cop on a SWAT team or whatever, a self-defense-minded concealed carry person, um, the tactics and the mindset obviously are going to vary between those, but the actual shooting skills I think are, are very, very similar. At the end of the day, we're taking a real handgun, and this is how I define practical shooting. We're taking a real handgun, something that you would really carry or something similar to that. When the decision is made to shoot, you are shooting at and trying to hit a human-sized target preferably as fast as you can hit it under a variety of circumstances. And so that's, that's my definition. The thing that, that I like the most about the competitive shooting <clears throat> is that it pushes the speed envelope a little more. In my opinion, just from a lot of the, the police training that I've been through in the years, it's, it's too, a lot of it is too slow-paced. Um, it it's just does not stress speed enough. And that's the one thing in any kind of a real-life environment, even a bar fight, I'm not even talking about a gunfight, I'm talking about just like regular, any type of incidences, that's what most people are not ready. They're not ready for how fast things happen. Well, you know, you bring up a good point, and I just want to premise what I'm about to say by mentioning that it started, as far as I know, in the military, in many cases, they started training to the lowest common yeah. denominator. Well, unfortunately, and both of us having police backgrounds, it kind of evolved into policing. And we had a lot of people coming into policing that weren't gun people like you and me. And many of them weren't particularly skilled in the physical skill area. And so what I saw in 30 years 
was a kind of a roller coaster ride where they ramped it up a little bit, but then problems happened where chiefs were complaining because people exactly. were having difficulty. Exactly. So they, they, they dumbed it down. Yeah. And right now, I mean, what's your, relative to this, the police qualification in the state of Ohio is 25 rounds from yep. a static position. Yeah. I think that's my, embarrassing. In my, my opinion on that, and I've said this for years, um, I've been a cop technically now for 15 years, is that most state qualifications in, in Ohio, when they made it easier, I don't know how many years ago that was, but uh, it is to the standard to where your average cop can literally never practice and pick up a gun one time a year, and most of them can go and pass it. And that's that's the reason that it is that way. Because if it, if it was beyond that, if it was harder – the bottom line comes down to money. They would have to pay him more money, more overtime to go out there and practice, and that's not going to And help. those were the overriding reasons that they cut back to the 25-round one time a year because you may remember the previous course, which I was involved in helping to get, was 60 rounds. I remember doing And there was it, some yeah. movement. There was multiple targets. Exactly. It was more practical. It was more tactical. And there were some people who didn't make it. And I yeah. remember just listening to people who were representatives of the chief saying, well, you know, you know, we got to send people on overtime to extra training because they're having a hard time qualifying and it costs money to call other people in to fill their, their positions. And we got to pay extra ammo because they can't just shoot 25 rounds. They got to shoot several hundred in training in order to get ready to shoot the 60. And they kind of dumbed it down. And as a career law enforcement officer, that was insulting to me because I would take pride in the fact that only one time in my last 10 years did I throw one shot out of the preferred scoring area. Yeah. And I was disappointed with that. Yeah. Whereas some people were, they come with sweat coming down their faces, worrying that they're going to achieve the 80% threshold. Exactly. Yeah, I've seen you know, that too, very yeah, much. Yeah, so when, when you talk about the differences, in, go ahead, Mark. I, I think one on. of the other factors, at least when that change occurred, was the fact that it was difficult to get ammo. There were, I mean, we, there was this big run on ammo for a while, and yeah. the manufacturers weren't able to produce enough, and so that was, I think, part of the factor for yeah. why they wanted to reduce to twenty-five. But obviously, that's no longer applicable, and now that they're down to twenty-five, my guess is it probably won't go back to something that is a more realistic test. Well, yeah, and, I'd be surprised. And the people that come to your training, what would you estimate? I have a percentage at the range where of all the people that have come to training and recreational shooting became members, uh, come to competitive events, three to five, no more than 7% are law enforcement officers. Is that what you find? Or um, do you have a larger for me, percentage? Pro- pro- probably similar. I, maybe a little more. I would say for me, maybe uh, maybe 10 to 15%. Okay, but still a low I, number. Yeah, I think because maybe I'm a little known for that because I am a cop and I have been, I, I, I draw some of that, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still, yeah, it's definitely yeah. a low number. But even I, mean, a lot of, I think it's a low number. Exactly. A lot of people would think, oh, you must train mostly cops or mostly can know, or, or even the competitions. A lot of people that don't know anything about anything, they think that, oh, it must be mostly cut. No. In the competition, it's well, about 5%, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and when we talk about real life versus competition, you said something that's very important. You've got to kind of train at the speed of life. And if all you do is train at the lowest <clears> common <throat> denominator, guaranteeing that everybody competent or incompetent can pass, you're certainly not getting ready for the dynamic, rapidly yeah. evolving, highly stressful real world situations, whether it's law enforcement involved or civilian involved. Yeah. That's and, what, what I tell people all the time is, I don't care what you do, okay, think about it this way. Probably 98% of the time, if not more, that you go to the range and shoot a real handgun with real bullets, you're probably shooting at a cardboard or paper target that's doing two things. It's not moving, it's not going away, and it's definitely not shooting back. Yeah. And so when, when those three those things occur, you can tell people they got to go fast and all this, but they don't take it that seriously because the target's still standing right there. Well, and I tell people the main benefit for competition is we insert prefabricated stressors 
that as close as possible will help replicate the physiological response, psychological response, and emotional response you're going to have in those real situations. Because in competitive training, you got to remember the course of fire. you got to shoot the targets in the order that you're supposed to shoot them. you got to remember how many shots. You've got to move from one position to the next. you got to make sure that you don't trip, fall, stumble, do whatever. Yeah. you got to deal with malfunctions if they inadvertently occur or reloads uh, based on the, the volume. So all those things raise the stress level, which, like I say, it as closely as possible replicates real-world situations sure. short of people shooting back at you. Yeah. Now, there's there's always airsoft or or um, uh, paintball-type training, when um, and you probably participated yeah. in some of that. Yeah. We've done some of that, but that's far between. But when we're talking about getting real trigger time, competitive shooting is a way to yeah, get I some mean, of those prefabricated stressors. Exactly. Going. I mean, how many ways are there to truly put pressure on somebody to perform with a real gun in their hand shooting real rounds? I mean... Tell me. Other, I mean, obviously, people don't go out and just get into a gunfight. I mean, so, some form of competition, organized or not, is one of the few ways, you know. And, and I've seen so many, so many different examples of that. Uh, you know, one other thing you mentioned earlier: fundamentals, primarily grip and trigger control. We add a third dimension, which I know you do too, and that's sight alignment, sight picture. Now, in competitive shooting, let me ask you: Can you describe for our audience? what you go through in your sight alignment sight picture. Are you using true sight alignment, front sight, in between the two? Do you got one sure. eye closed, and both eyes open? How do you? The, the biggest thing is it all obviously depends. I'm shooting targets anywhere from three feet away to 50 yards away, and, mm -hmm. and there's a variety of different techniques. Ultimately, at the, at the, at the end of the day, you got to do what you got to do to be able to call your shot. And that means while you're shooting, seeing what you need to see to know you're actually hitting the target. At a, at a very close target, you don't need to see the sights at all. In the very close target, you don't need to see the gun. Literally, you can totally point shoot. You know, at the farthest, hardest shots, you need to actually see everything. Front sight, rear sight, alignment, and actually you want to see those sights lift off the targets. And then there's all this in between. So, I mean, that's something I could kind of go on a long time about. But for most distances, <clears throat> combat-type shooting, self-defense type shooting, they're relatively close. You know, it's going to go from, from some form of point shooting out to where you're probably should be looking at your front sight. Are, are you a believer that um, one of the things I've experienced personally, and I've heard uh, people like Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman mention that under real circumstance, um, unless you have time, distance, and cover, it's almost physiologically impossible to close one eye when you're under immediate threat especially when there's somebody three, five, seven, ten 10 feet in front of you, your eyes are going to get big. You're going to see that there's a, yeah. an assault, and a, you know, something dangerous looming. You're going to draw your gun. You're going to push to the target, and you're going to fire shots. But it goes back to what you said earlier. That instinctive point shooting isn't something that just happens overnight. Now, there are some people who, surprisingly to me, they pick up a gun. I do some early training. They're pretty darn good at instinctive point shooting. But the majority of people, it's another thing that needs to be practiced. It yeah. needs to be you, you need, need to, to spend think time about with that. gun in your hand. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, now what would you say is your effective range in your particular case? Again, we're talking nationally, internationally renowned shooter. Effective range for instinctive point or um, just instinctive shooting? Well, and again, circumstantial. If you're looking at, again, it all depends on what scoring system you put into place uh, and what, what percentages. But I would say I feel myself I could, if it's just talking about hitting a human-sized torso target, reliably hitting that the vast majority of the times, I feel I can do that pretty well out to 10 yards or so. Okay. I mean, now I, I, I normally at 10 yards, I'm, I'm actually looking at the, at the front side, but, if, but I, 
yeah, I, I would say I could. Now, when you say you're looking at the front sight, are you just seeing the front sight in your foreground vision, or are you actually lining up with one eye looking for that front well, sight? Well, I never close. I never close an eye. I, I mean, I'm right, right-handed, right-eye dominant. I'm able to shoot all the time, both eyes open. Uh-huh. So, and that's a whole other kind of conversation. If you can do that, great. If you can't, there's some other options. But yeah, I, I have both both eyes open. Um, like I say, the the hardest part is just being able to instinctually do what you need to do to uh, to get those hits. The hardest thing is because the, the human condition is always to look at the target, always to look at the target, and uh, you got to be able to to overcome that. And that's what you do in almost every other sport. I mean, you're throwing a baseball, throwing a basketball. Yeah, you're always exactly. Even even like with shotgun or trap shooting, you're looking you're looking at the target, yeah. and and that's that's something that's got to you know be overcome because and that's, that's part of the reason. Some of the reason the, the the hit ratio for police is what like fifteen percent, fifteen or lower. Yeah, there's a number of reasons for that. I think that's that that's that's one of them. It's it's yeah. yeah. It's a combination of factors: lack of training, lack of people that you know have prior experience, the dynamic nature of the circumstances, and and uh, uh, but then again, you know, even in the civilian world, when you have um, circumstances where uh, people get involved in life-threatening situations. There are often many errant shots, and um, fortunately, because of the closeness at which most of those occur, people are able to, um, in many cases, defend themselves. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something earlier about your ability to shoot with both eyes open. Was that something you started out from the beginning, or did you gravitate towards that over? Well, I think I, gra- I, I started out when I was pretty young. I mean, like I said, from reading some of the books, and to me, it was like, okay, what are the best shooters in the world doing? And I'm reading it, oh, they're all shooting with both eyes open. I better learn to do that. I don't think it came totally natural for me at first, but I did start it from a from a very young age, and and so I, I honestly can't really remember when I wasn't doing that. It's yeah. been it's been a long time ago. Yeah. Um. um relative to training, um, we have some people I'm sure in our listening audience, and certain people at uh, um, a- at the range that would be interested in taking. Um, I don't know which one, probably the competitive pistol or the world-class pistol skills, how much time, let's say we get a group of people of uh, 8 to 12, which might be a good that's, audience that's for you. A good number, yeah. Do you like to do that in two-hour, four-hour, eight-hour? Normally, and I'm open to do whatever any place wants to do. Some places they want to do things a little different. Most of my classes are, are full day, eight hours okay. a day. So yeah. Now, when you say eight hours, is that with a couple breaks and then a lunch well, break? It's usually in including a lunch break, yeah. break. Usually, was it nine to five yeah. or eight to four or something like that with a little lunch break? In what there. about a round count? What's your typical? Normally, I tell people uh, to bring 500 okay. a day, and sometimes they won't shoot that. But uh, and it get, depends on a lot of factors, too. It depends sure. on the range, targets available, and the people, too. Uh, but that's normally what I tell people to bring for a day. For somebody that might be gearing up towards coming to a class a month from now, two months from now, um, maybe they've done some competitive shooting at Sim Trainer on a local basis. What do you want them to do or what don't you want them to do? The, the, the main thing would be safety. I mean, I'm not too worried about people's skill level. Uh, it, it's it's all going to be about safety. Although, in general, the higher skill level, the, the more safe somebody is. But um, being able to not, not wave the gun around, right? I mean, be able to come there, be able to safely in and out of the holster, and, and maybe do uh, a few movement things that we do uh, without breaking the, the, as we call it, the 180 180-degree rule, not being able to turn around with a gun and, and that sort of thing. If somebody can do that and unload, load, unload without obviously you know, doing that, pointing the gun to the person next to him, something like that, uh, that's really the main thing I'm concerned Good. about. Well, we're going to work, work real hard to try to make that happen because I think it would be the next logical step for people that want to get better at what they're doing. Having somebody with your reputation and your experience would certainly be a great way to, to get that jump started, so we'll work on that. I want to talk a little bit now about um, the difference between 
what you do nationally traveling around the country versus international? Maybe there's no difference. Maybe there is, but can you just... Well, as far as the, the the biggest difference would be just when I go international outside of the United States, dealing with traveling with the guns and ammunition, that would be the biggest difference. It's obviously more of a hassle. Every country is different. You have to have some paperwork from that end. And every time I've done that, I've had somebody on that end do that for me. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much work it required on their part. Uh, but uh, that's that's really the, the main thing, obviously. And then just the, the cost of traveling, this and that. Is that pretty common for an international competition to have somebody who just takes care of that kind of paperwork? Well, it's it depends. I, I know, and I wouldn't even say it was, when I've done classes overseas, that's what they've done. Uh, I had somebody specifically bringing me, me there that did that. Now, when you shot a match, then it's kind of the organization of the match that does that. And sometimes that's been actually on our side. Like I've been on the, the United States uh, team the last four world shoots, which is only every three years. So in that case, uh, the USPSA, our United States organization, did a lot of the work figuring out what we as a shooters needed. And they just told us, hey, this is what you got to do. Or they, they gave us the paperwork and what we needed. So it depends on, on every, every case is, is a little bit different. Obviously, the majority, pretty much yeah, every country that I've been to, has had more strict laws in the United States, uh, which, yeah, that's just, just how it is. So it's uh, you had to kind of watch what you were doing. For they sure. don't have the Second Amendment. Exactly, and that's the reason. I mean, that's that's a large part of the reason. What um, what were the qualifications or what process did you have to do to become part of that elite U.S. team? Uh, well, basically it was that the World Shoot's every three years, and that's like our Olympics. So <clears throat> the previous two years before the World Shoot, there's – uh, two nationals each each year. It's kind of complicated. It's just based off your performance. If you're in the top, the top four, um, in 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 that, and obviously there's like hundreds of people overall that would be going for it. But if you make it into the the top four, that four is the team. And now so, I know from talking to you and from looking at some information on your website, you have won and placed at the international, national, um, state, and regional level competitions. What over the years is the one that stands out, if any? Uh, the one that would probably stand out when I won the the Ipsic World Championship in in Greece that was the in 2011 that was the uh, that was the day after I turned 30 actually, and uh, that was probably the yeah was the, the biggest match that I've won like I say that's that's kind of like our Olympics and I did that with a stock lock 17 which I was I was pretty proud of, um, but yeah that would that would stand out a couple other uh, nationals and and some IDP World Championships but that that one there was the the biggest. Um, most recognized, I would say. We've I talked wanna... about several times about information that's on your website, but we haven't said what your website is. Oh, sure. <laughs> it's just um, Robert at, well, I'm thinking of my email, Vogel, vogeldynamics.com is the website. Or just Google Robert Vogel, and I think it comes up first. Yeah, and, and I just did Bob Vogel, and it came up, yeah. it came up there. So Mark will make sure that uh, that's on the site for a, a quick, easy access. Um, you mentioned the Ipsic in Greece, 2011, but you said something, a stock Glock. So you don't have to have a race gun, a special well, gun, in order yeah. to, to win I, these I, I, I should say totally stock. It was in that particular division. And it's, it's, you get into this, it's pretty complicated with the rules and what's allowed in this division and this sport. And, but the Ipsic IPSE production division rules are pretty strict. So I did have a different set of sights, um, and I put, had a little bit of grip tape on it. 
but other, otherwise it was it was pretty stock actually you well, had to have a five pound trigger or heavier on that on that gun those so. special sights that you had did they automatically aim the gun for you <laughs> no not quite no, you still had to aim the gun right I still had to aim the gun yeah. for sure and, and these people I have and and I've gotten I've kind of come full circle when I initially got involved in this I was hesitant and I would discourage people from going ahead and tricking out their guns. Well, obviously, for the businessman and through advice from Mark and my colleagues, they're like, wait a minute, if they want to give it to them, um, it's not going to make them any better. I know the, the, the big joke now, and, and we joke, and I love Glock, and I'm not a Glock shooter, but I love Glock, and they, they kind of set the standard semi automatic pistol. Their new Gen 5 came out with the new enhanced marksman barrel, and we teased the one guy who bought the first one down at the range. He was shooting consistently to the left, and we told him that's going to fix his problem because it's the new marksman barrel, yeah. so it's going to obviously take care of the problem. Well, you know as well as I do, some of the other people don't realize it, they think that they're going to be better shooters based on what they do to the yeah, gun. Yeah, they're kind of looking for the, the shortcut and do some of the equipment to get them to the next level. Where's that I, happy yeah. median there? I mean, you could probably take any competition and literally shoot a stock Glock that has just been cleaned and cleaned up, and maybe you won't win, but you'd still be do pretty well, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I personally think that the, the better of a shooter you are, the more difference you're going to notice in, in things. It's just like a, a race car driver, NASCAR dri- driver, being able to tell the difference in three to five pounds of pressure and their yeah. tire going around the curve. Most go. people aren't going to be able to do that. Same same thing in shooting. A lot of people, your average person wouldn't tell the difference between a, a three-pound trigger and a five-pound trigger. You know, yeah. a guy at a higher level, he's going to tell the difference. What do you so. think about the guy who's been shooting for a while? He has a Glock, let's say he has a Glock 17, and he's thinking about getting involved in competitive shooting. And he says, you know what, before I do that, I want to go ahead and get a custom trigger. Is that necessary? Well, it, it all depends on what you're, what you're trying to do. Now, we do, like I say, in that, in what I was talking about, I did have to shoot a stock trigger. But other places, like the, the division I just shot in recently in France is more of a, it's a standard division. And the, that allows more modification. So I did some more modification. So it all depends on what you're trying to do. If you just want to go and do okay and be competitive, um, then it's, it's not going to be necessary. If you are a very competitive person and you are trying to win and you are, and, and if you're already at a decent level um, doing that, sometimes you can see some, some improved results. So when you make those kind of changes, what does that do to your practice regimen? I mean, you've got to practice with the gear you're going to be using. Well, it, honestly, yes and no, but it, if you can shoot, you can shoot. The idea that you're going to take some of these professional shooters that are up national world champions and like, oh, they – they, uh, they can only shoot their fancy guns. If you give them a stock gun, they can't shoot. Oh, uh, no, not at all. They'll still take that stock gun and, and shoot a lot better than you. They're not going to shoot as good as they shoot when they won, won the Nationals, but they're, just, they're still going to shoot. So I do think if you can shoot, you can shoot. But a lot of it is, is how much you balance that. I mean, if you only, only, only ever shoot your competition gun and never shoot your carry gun, yeah, you, you know, it might show up. But as long as you're kind of bouncing back and forth in there, uh, I think it's I think it's okay. But do you have I mean all of your stuff you shoot you shoot Glock. So I do I yeah. do yeah yeah I, I do I've probably got about uh, probably thirty of them I'm guessing I don't know, but um and, and set up varying different ways but they're all very similar I mean so my my competition gun one of my competition guns versus my carry gun is very similar the the, the trigger on my carry gun is going to be a little bit heavier not enough that I think it really makes that much of a difference I mean if I'm five hundredths of a second slower. And and that is it going to matter? I don't know. If I'm five hundredths of a second slower in competition, I, I've won and lost national championships, maybe thousands of dollars based off five ten tenth of a second, something like that. You know, so in that case, you start thinking about that stuff a lot. Yeah. Uh, but for the beginning shooter, 
they could buy a good gun. Yeah, for the beginning shooter, it's it's not. I wouldn't even worry about it at first. I mean, learn to shoot before you really worry about the, the guns for yeah. for the majority of people. Yeah, and then as sure. you mentioned, the more they get in competition, they want to push the plate. Um, basically, for enhancements, I've noticed grips, different grips, textures mainly. Um, um, like you said, you added a little bit of tape or some yeah, modification, yeah. changing the texture, the overall feel, triggers. Sights. What else? Yeah. What are some other yeah, things? People side, do? The, 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 I always tell people the trigger and the sights. The trigger being number one are the things that are going to make the biggest difference as far as performance. The third aspect, the, the grip, somewhat. Uh, actually, having from the competitive side, having a little bit lighter of a recoil spring. Actually, yeah. Well, but uh, talking about all this stuff, the, the number one thing that, that is not acceptable though <clears throat> is going to be uh, is, is reliability. Yeah. You know, I see way too many people and their sacrificing reliability the, the minute a gun doesn't work okay something is wrong you have to fix it don't don't just keep going on that's the thing that baffles me the most is to see guys on a range and you see them the gun just jams six or eight times for whatever reason but you talk to them after and they're like well i, I don't know i just hope it's i hope it well, stops i'm gonna continue gonna continue yeah. to do it yeah no if, if it did it that many times it's gonna keep doing it you have to change something you have to get it to somebody that, that is knowledgeable about this and figure out the problem and fix it because it's that's the number one thing is reliability what about the people who really want to get involved in this competitively and as they evolve is there a notable difference between say the length of the slide and or the sight radius on a glock 19 versus a 20 or a um a 17 versus a 34, um, do you, and I, I didn't even pay attention, I imagine you have the longer sight radius, but do you notice that being a, a big factor? Not a big factor, no. A little factor, yes. I, I, I can tell a little bit of difference in um, in the sight radius. Uh, one thing you also, have to, and the 17 and the 34 is not this way, but on some of the other guns it is, when you get a bigger gun with a longer slide, it's not just a longer slide, it's a heavier slide. It makes the gun shoot a little softer, makes it basically recoil a little bit less, and makes okay. the tighter shots a little bit easier to make consistently so uh, that that can be that can be a factor too that's a very interesting point because i've read it, it seems obvious but it's just nice to hear somebody like you who's actually experienced it tell the listeners out there that in addition to the longer sight radius yeah because it's there's more steel and that's it's yeah, that's basically when i shoot a, a 40 caliber which is a little more recoil and the divisions that i shoot between say a glock 24 which is a six inch gun versus a glock 22 which is like about a four and a half um i think the weight in the slide makes way more difference than the sight radius. I mean, that's the main reason I like to shoot that gun. It just makes it a little bit softer. If if all you're shooting at is full-size targets at 7 to 10 yards away, it wouldn't make much difference. Sure. If you're trying to consistently shoot some even partial shots, head shots, 15 yards, maybe 20, 25 yards, and do that consistently under pressure, that's, that's a whole other thing. You know, while we're on the topic of guns, Glock pretty much owned the law enforcement industry and still has a substantial uh, proportion of that industry. Um, as far as the number of guns that police officers on the streets are carrying. But over the last 20 years in particular, Smith & Wesson, Ruger, um, Springfield, maybe in the last 10 years, have, um, I, I say they've made some hard charges. Um, from your experience, having shot a lot of guns, what are some of the other guns out there that you're pretty impressed with? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of guns. There's a lot more quality guns out there now than I think there was 10 to, 10 to 15 years ago. There's a lot of um, ones that have caught up with Glock. Uh, I don't know. I mean, SIG's got this new 320 thing. A lot of people are jumping on that. Um, you know, the MMP's been around for a little bit, while, a little while now, so you see a lot of guys shooting those. Uh, yeah, I've shot a little bit of everything. I've shot Glocks pretty exclusively for, for 12 years. The one thing I like about the Glock is, and, and, and it's a factor that most people don't even know exists, is a, called the bore axis. Is when you hold that gun in your hand, how high or low the, the actual bore is in relation to your hand. And the Glock is very low. 
lower than pretty than all those other guns that I just that just mentioned. And when you shoot fast, that's what makes a difference. If you just told me to stand there and shoot a bullseye target and shoot a good group, I actually shoot a little better with like a Sigur in 1911. But when you're you're trying to shoot four, five, six shots a second, actually pull the trigger as fast as you can, and and what I call run the gun and hit a, a human sized target out to a reasonable distance, that's where the, the Glock, um, the ergonomics in that fact come into play. And so, and, and what I'm doing, that's that's uh, that's a big factor. Yeah. So, but th- there's a lot to, to, you know, again, just I would say normal people, but people that are not going to be at that elite level of competition and trying to win national world championships or whatever, uh, it's not going to make that much difference. What about the variation or differences at the international and national level from the, your fellow competitors? What are they shooting? Well, and, and what I just shot like this in recently, last couple of years in France, um, I'm one of the rare guys that shot a Glock. In fact, almost everybody else is shooting uh, some kind of a, of a high-cap 1911, like an STI or an SV, a few guys shot a CZ, but basically a heavy steel frame gun. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, th- th- that's the reason the 1911 has lasted as long as it has, because it's a single-action gun. You can get, I mentioned trigger being the number one thing, that's why. You can get down to a pound-and-a-half trigger. Some guys get even lighter than that. And when you're trying to shoot at that speed, at that accuracy, and at that distance, um, at, at the highest level in the world, that's where that that's where that matters. Yeah. Now, many of the 1911s are they shooting them nine millimeter or 45? Well, they either shoot in my division, they would be shooting a 40, <clears throat> 40. because of how it's scored. It's, yeah. it's, it's being scored major now in the production division, which is probably just as popular, if not more popular. Um, it's the nine millimeter. So it's all these rules on the on the divisions as to dict- will dictate the caliber. Um, but yeah, nine millimeter or a forty. There's there's a few places for a forty five, but not not a whole lot. IDPA has a CDP division that you have to shoot a forty five in. Um, but those are mainly the calibers. And then of course you got the open the, the space guns <laughs> that are shooting thirty eight super, and that's a whole other whole other category there. Good, Mark. You have anything else you want to ask Bob while we got him here? I'm just really glad that you were able to come out, and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to come meet with us, shoot our league. Let uh, some of the people who were there at the morning league on Wednesday see you shoot and see what, you know, what the what difference is when the the time to run the course of fire got cut in half. <laughs> well, or thank less. you. Thank you. Yeah, or was, less. I just have I, to say again, I Bob, I, I want to thank you for coming and, and just watching. And, and my son, who is one of the faster shooters, um, he was still six or seven seconds slower than you were. Um, you're a little bit lighter, and even though you're a little <laughs> bit older, and obviously you're much more experienced, but it was a real, it was a real treat to see a world-class shooter here in in Dayton, Ohio. I, I'm just so grateful that you took the time today out of your busy day to come down, and I'm excited about in the in the next uh, month or so trying to get a class together so some people can kind of get some firsthand experience of what you have to offer. Sure. Thanks All for right. coming well, down. No, thank you for having me. Like I say I'm, I'm glad you asked me a few weeks ago, and then I had a few days open, and I'm, I'm glad it worked out. Thanks very much for being with us. Uh, You've been listening to Shooting from the Hip on our podcast at sim-trainer.com. Thinking about learning to shoot? Considering buying a gun? Want to enjoy the sport of shooting with a friend or family member? How about getting involved in competitive shooting? Sim Trainer offers all these opportunities and more. Visit, call, or stop by. Visit us at sim-trainer.com. Call the range at 293-3914. Or stop by the range at 2031 Dryden Road, then listen to the podcast by clicking the radio link at sim-trainer.com.